Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. When you get an opportunity, check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. Well, this morning, we want to uh, start a new section in the book of Revelation as we've been journeying through Revelation. And we looked at chapter one, and it just kind of reminded us that Jesus wins, that he is Lord of all, he's in charge of history, he has his plan that he's unfolding, and he is Lord of all, and he has a message for his church. And that's what we want to look at today is just spend the next four weeks between now and Thanksgiving time that we are going to look at the letters that Jesus had John write to the early churches that were recipients of these letters. And it was what they should do in light of the fact that, that Jesus is in charge of history and, and in light of the fact that he's coming back soon. And, and, and all that's unfolded in the, the message of the book of Revelation, what are, what are they to do in light of that? And what's the, what's the message for them? And so we want to look at these letters from Jesus. But as you look at these letters, you understand that they're really love letters. And I know that maybe sounds kind of funny because there's a lot of warnings and there's challenges for people to repent and get right with God and, and it doesn't have a lot of mushy, romantic kind of stuff. So why do you say love letters? Because Jesus says very clearly that those that he loves, he does challenge to do what's right and be right with him, to get right with him. And so there's this constant message and all seven of the letters that we'll be looking through over the next couple weeks, these short little letters, there's this constant message of Jesus loves you, Jesus cares about you, and he wants you to love him also, to love him in return. And we'll see that especially in the passage of Scripture that we'll be reading this morning as well. I want to ask you this question. Um, what is the most important thing to you? What is the most important way that you could spend your time? What is the most important thing that you could invest your money in or spend your money on? What, what, what could you give your physical energy and strength to that would be the best thing, the most important thing to you? Well, the answer to that when it comes to what the Bible teaches and especially the message of these letters is the most important thing that you and I could ever give ourselves to is loving Jesus. It's loving Jesus and loving Him most of all. It's the most important thing in life to love Jesus most of all. And you can go to that next slide, Frank. It's just honoring Him. It's, it's putting Him first. And that's what we're going to focus on today as we begin exploring the message of Jesus to the seven churches. Now, as we look through these letters in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, these letters are short. They're not real long, but they're really weighty. They're really powerful in what Jesus has to say. The letters have a couple things in common. You'll notice these as we read them and explore them together over the next several weeks. You'll notice that Jesus always introduces himself, and as he introduces himself, he describes himself according to the, the, the characterization that he gives of himself in chapter 1, the vision that John had. And so you'll see him holding in his hand the seven stars, and you'll, you'll see that he's standing among the lampstands as well. And so there are these characteristics of Jesus that are described there. The letters are written to leaders of the church. It says to the angel of the church. And we talked last week how that word angel literally means a messenger, somebody that's sent 
and authorized uh, to, to declare a message for someone. And yes, it could be a celestial being like an angelic being, an angel, a guardian angel of the church, but it's probably better to see it as the human leaders of the church. And he's writing this letter, and it's actually written in such a way, the grammar is such, that he's writing to one individual in that church. He's writing to the leader. And he's writing to the leader of the church. The leader would lead the church in the right direction. Now, the message is for the entire church. But the focus is, is, the focus is on the leader setting the kind of example and giving priority to make sure that the church family learns this. And so I just want to say to myself and all my fellow elders and uh, growth group leaders and people like that that are in leadership here in the church, this is a message that you need to pay very special attention to because you have to help the people that you're shepherding follow Jesus the way that he's calling for us to do in this pa these passages as well. As you go through these letters, you'll notice also that there's usually some kind of statement of Jesus saying, I know this about you. I know something about you. He says, I know your works, or I know the troubles that you're going through, or I know these other things, the situation that you're in. I know what it's like where you're at and what you're doing. I'm aware of that. So you don't have to, you know, Jesus is not surprised. He's fully cognizant of everything that's going on in our church. And then he gives some kind of a warning, not always, but usually there's some kind of a warning like they're doing something that's not right and they need to get right with him. And there's always some kind of encouragement to do what's right. And he ends the letter by saying, the person that overcomes, the person who takes this seriously and trusts in me, I promise this to them. And it's a great hope, a great encouragement, a great inspiration to them, what he promises them. And then he concludes by making some kind of a statement, and it's usually in, right there near the very end where he says, the person who has ears, make sure you're listening to what the Spirit says to the churches. These letters are written to seven different churches in ancient Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And these cities are not the only cities where churches, where Christians were worshiping and uh, serving the Lord, but they were selected as a cross-section of the churches in that region. And the point is, is that these seven different churches represent different types of Christians and different types of assemblies with different kinds of needs and problems. And Jesus says, if you take the message to all seven churches, that's what I want all the Christians to know. That's what I want all the Christians to do. That's what I want every church to listen to and pay attention to. So not just this one at Ephesus or this one at Smyrna, as we'll look at today, but I want you to listen to all the, the letters to the churches, all the messages there, and pay attention to them carefully because I have a word for every church, and it's through this compilation of letters to the seven churches as well. As we think about this issue of what's most important in life, and what's most important in life is that we love Jesus above everything else and anyone else, as Jesus writes these first letters to the churches, he's challenging them about their priorities, and he's challenging them to make sure that they really do put Jesus first. When you think about the future, when you think about where life, uh, what's going on today, what is happening in your life today, the most important thing you can do is to put Jesus Christ first in your life and to love him most of all. 
And the thing is, is it's not because he's demanding it, although he does challenge us and call us to love him that way. We're told in Scripture to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then love our neighbor as ourself. But he wants us to understand that this loving Jesus is actually a great privilege. It's really what we need to do more than anything else is because we need it. It's a blessing to us when we love Jesus more than anything. It honors Him, it worships Him, it gives glory to His name, and it's the right priority for our lives. But it's also the privilege that we need to understand. And as we keep reading, when we look at the second little letter to the church, we're going to notice that not only is it a privilege to love Jesus, but we're going to see that there's a price to pay to love Jesus. But it's worth it. There's a price to pay, but it's worth it. And I want you to see both of these things as we read the letter that Jesus wrote through John to the church at Ephesus and to the church at Smyrna as well. So take your Bibles, please, and let's turn to Revelation chapter 2. Now, this is on page 1028 if you'd like to follow along today okay, in the Bible. And I urge you, beg you to do that, please. Revelation chapter 2. This is on page 1028. We're going to start at verse 1, and certainly you're welcome to uh, load it up on your, your tablet or reading device. So we're looking over John's shoulder as he's listening to Jesus, and, and John's writing these letters, and they're going to be mailed out to these different churches, the leaders of the churches as well. And so listen to what Jesus has to say. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you're enduring patiently and are bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you are fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. In this opening letter, Jesus challenges us to understand that it's a privilege to love him most of all. It's a privilege to love Jesus more than anything else. And so we need to work at making sure he's our priority, that he's our focus in life. Now look what he says. Jesus describes himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. If you take a moment and look back in chapter 1 between verses 9 and 20, you'll remember that uh, the vision that John had of Jesus was this this one who looked like a son of man. He was in white robes, golden sash, white wool-like, snow-like hair, blazing eyes, all of uh, feet that looked like glowing bronze and uh, a sword coming out of his mouth. And it's a, it's a vision. It's an apocalyptic vision of Jesus in his exalted state as Lord of the church. 
And he's holding in his hands these seven stars. And the stars represent the different leaders of the churches that he wants to write to. And he's walking in the midst of these seven golden candelabras that uh, are a reminder that uh, Jesus is in the presence of God. It's like a temple setting. And each one of those candelabras represents the churches. And the fact that there's a light that's shining in the darkness reminds us of our worship, our privilege to worship, and our privilege and responsibility to witness for Christ as well. And Jesus is walking there among them. He's conducting surveillance operations. He's aware of what's going on in the churches. He has authority and control over the leaders of the churches. And so he's stating here that he's sovereign, that he's the leader of the churches, and he has the right to give this message and responsibility to give this message to this church in Ephesus. And they shouldn't balk or complain or resist this message that Jesus is giving to them. He starts off by saying, I know for a fact your works and your toil and your patient endurance and that you can't bear with those that are evil and you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You found them to be false and I know you're enduring and I know you're bearing up for my namesake and you've not grown weary. The thing about the church in Ephesus is that they were busy and they were faithful. They were doctrinally pure they, they resisted people who were false teachers, people who claimed to be messengers from Jesus, but they were really self-appointed, which is kind of ironic because an apostle is somebody who's sent on a mission. You have to be sent by someone, and they had sent themselves. So they weren't apostles of Christ. They were just apostles of themselves. And uh, the people at Ephesus, the Christians there, understood that they were frauds that they were preaching a false gospel, and they found them to be false. Not only that, but John, Jesus writes through John to say, I know that you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. You haven't quit. You are so faithful, and you're serving, and you're working, and you're, you're morally pure, and you're doctrinally pure, and you're busy for me, and you've not denied my name, and you haven't quit, and you're doing all this stuff. And in fact, it's interesting in the original language, when you're reading this section, it's like you did this, and you did this, and you did this, and you do this, and you do this, and you do this, and it's like a checklist. Look, I see all this stuff you're doing. All this impressive stuff. But notice what he says in verse 4. And this is shocking. In verse 4, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Now this is what's hard, I think, for pastors to hear, and missionaries, and evangelists, and Sunday school teachers, and Christian leaders, and elders, and, and really anybody that's trying to serve the Lord in any capacity. And you hear that. That Jesus would say, You have left the love you had at first. What, Jesus? What's wrong? Look at what I'm doing. I'm working for you. I'm teaching for you. I'm praying for you. I'm preaching for you. I'm serving and leading for you. I'm organizing for you. I'm helping others for you. I'm caring for widows for you. I'm witnessing for you. I'm standing up against evil for you. I'm keeping myself morally pure for you. And you say I don't love you? I don't have the love I had at first? What? The thing is, this is what's hard for us to face. We need to step out of denial 
when it comes to this. I can be morally pure and not love Jesus. I can teach the Bible and not love Jesus. I can witness to people and not love Jesus. I can take, uh, make donations to a food bank and help the poor and not love Jesus. I can do all these good religious things, all these things of service. I could do all this, spend all this energy, do all this work, give all my time, invest all my money. I can do all these things. And if I don't love, I'm doing nothing. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. Without love, it's just noise. Without love, it's, it's nothing. You've, you've bankrupt yourself for no purpose without love. Jesus is saying the same kind of thing. You can do all the work that's involved in serving Christ and not love Christ. That's a frightening thing. So why are you doing what you do? Why do you serve the way you serve? Why do you give the way you give? What are you doing? And why? Are you, really, this is about why are you doing what you're doing? Why am I doing what am I doing? Is it because I truly love Christ? Or is it because I'm trying to earn something? Or impress somebody? Or try to, to gain God's favor? Or maybe I feel like I owe it to Him. What Jesus wants us to understand that the life that we are to live with Christ is about enjoying Christ. Not trying to earn stuff from Christ. How do you approach the Christian life? How do you approach your relationship with God? Is it trying to earn stuff from God? Or is it enjoying God? Is it just being rituals and religious activity or is it really a relationship that you just enjoy being together and being with him do you enjoy christ or are you trying to earn something from christ the ephesian christians were busy they were doing good things they were doing impressive things you and i would look at them and say wow what dedicated christians and yet jesus says because he knows the truth you don't really love me you're doing this for yourself. You're doing this for other people and not for me. He says in verse 5, Remember therefore, this is how he gives the encouragement, remember therefore from where you are fallen. You know, when you and I think about loving Jesus and compare it to maybe the scandals that we see in churches, maybe... Someone has had an affair, some church leader, a priest or pastor, or maybe they've committed some sort of financial embezzlement, or, or, or maybe the, 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 the Christians in a church are just fighting and arguing and splitting among each other. And, and, and we look at all that and I say, man, that guy really fell. He's a fallen pastor. Or that church really fell. Look at all those terrible, scandalous things that they're doing in that church or that ministry is doing. But Jesus says the real scandal where the real fall has taken place is when we fail to love him first of all. Remember from where you have fallen. Do you really love Jesus most of all? Do you really enjoy Jesus most of all? The scandal is not that you went off and committed immorality or that you were dishonest or that you're a gossip the, the, the real scandal is, is that we have neglected to love Christ most of all. He's our first love. He says, so remember that. Do an honest 
evaluation of yourself. Stop and think about your, your, your walk with Christ. And I've been trying to do that more lately. One of the things I've been challenged with in a good way in Celebrate Recovery as I participate in that is, is to just do an honest inventory of my life at the end of every day or at the beginning of the next day and just think about, you know, where am I at? You know, I'm grateful for what God has done and I try to just slowly review the day, you know, what were the things that took place in my day and then think about how did my emotions and how did I respond and how did I act in those situations? And maybe I need to confess something and admit that I was wrong and repent of it, turn away from it. And then I ask God for his grace and receive that grace, enter into the grace of God as well. And that's just, a, that's just something that you could make it part of your quiet time, your own relationship with the Lord and just look at where are you at in your relationship with him. Remember, he says, therefore, from where you're fallen. But then notice the second thing that he commands them to do in verse five, repent, repent. That means to make that spiritual U-turn and start moving in the opposite direction. It's not a 360, it's a 180. <laughs> you, you are going in one direction away from the Lord and you put the brakes on and you make a hard, sharp U-turn and you come back to the Lord and you draw near to Him. And so, in this case, it's remembering that, okay, I'm busy for Jesus, but I don't love Jesus. Lord, I'm so sorry. Forgive me for loving my work. For, not that your work is wrong, but forgive me for loving my work more than you. Forgive me for loving other people more than you. Forgive me for loving myself more than you. And instead of trying to impress you and earn from you, help me enjoy you. Help me just grow in my relationship with you and just to be with you and enjoy that and savor that. Be in that loving union with you. That's that spiritual U-turn to, to say I was wrong to do it the way I was doing it. And I come back to you and I ask you to receive me. And then he says do. This is the third command in verse 5. Do the first works. Do the first works. And you go, whoa, when I read that, I go, sounds like you're just saying get more busy. No, 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 no. He's talking about do the, the works of love that you were doing at the beginning of your relationship with Christ. Do the things that really matter in your relationship with Christ, of spending time with Him and focusing on Him and, and drawing, you know, having your attention focused on Him as well. And, and uh, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And so the things that he describes in verses 2 and 3 about, you know, resisting those that are doing evil and exposing false teachers and staying morally pure and doctrinally true, those are all good things. We should do them. But it's, we're doing them because we love Christ, not to earn something from Christ. We do them because we're enjoying Christ and we just want to be with Him and share His life. And that's why we do what we do. Not because we're trying to get something from Him, but because we've already received something from Him. We've already received His love that He's unconditionally given to us. When, when Dawn and I were first married, uh, this, was, this was like a couple months after we had gotten married. And I was serving at a church. We were at a, a church in Hagerstown, Maryland. And it was a Sunday where I had the privilege of actually going to another church. It was like Youth Sunday at their church, this other little country church in, uh, in, in uh, 
down near Harpers Ferry, West Virginia. And, and uh, I went there and spoke at the church that morning. And, um, and then we came home and we got dinner out on the way home. And, and uh, then in the afternoon, I, I found some books and I was reading. And then we went to church. And I think when church was over, I was reading books again. Yeah, I'm a real romantic fellow, aren't I, uh, as a newlywed. And um, I never forget Dawn slipped me a note that said, I wish I was a book. Thank you for doing that, Dawn. The point is, is that, you know, I was doing good stuff. I know she was proud of me. And I think she even agreed with what I was preaching on and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it, it, was, it was good to serve, and she, she believed in what I was doing. But I can be so bound up in the things that I like to do, and the things I love, and the work I do, and impressing other people, and learning more stuff, that I forgot all about that I had a brand new wife, lovely young wife. I was so focused on the work. Your work is good, but your work was never meant to take the place of Christ. My work was good. It was never meant to take the place of my wife. I wish I was a book. I'll never forget that. I do forget it sometimes. But the challenge is to love her and honor her, but even in a bigger way to love and honor Christ and serve him. It's not about performing. It's about enjoying Him. It's not about earning or even working in such a way that you feel good about yourself because sometimes you don't really care what other people think. You've just got that own measuring stick inside your soul. Did you measure up? Even if nobody else knows, did you measure up to what you wanted to do? And it's not even worrying about that anymore. It's just saying, I am loved, I am accepted, by Christ and I love him in return that's what's most important remember therefore from where you have fallen repent and do the works that you did at first love Jesus like you did at the very beginning of that relationship notice the warning that he gives if not I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent you see, if I'm enjoying Jesus, if I'm loving Jesus and, knowing that Je and know that Jesus loves me, then, then, then people will see the light of Jesus shining out brightly from my life. People will, will be, be uh, noticing Jesus in me because that's who I think about. That's who I talk about. That's who I love. That's who loves me. And, and, and in that relationship, it's just it's exciting. It's, it's like, a, a, again, just to use a, a common analogy, but a, a couple that have fallen in love, and when they're away from each other and they're with their family, they're with their friends, they can't help but talk about the other person. He did this. She did that. She looks like this. Oh, wow, she's this. He's that. And it, they're excited. If I'm truly loving Jesus because it's a privilege to love him and it blesses me to love him and, and he loves me and I'm enjoying this relationship with him, if I'm truly doing that, then people will see Jesus in me. Worship is easy. Witnessing is easy in those situations. But the warning that Jesus gives here is if you don't do that, if you don't love me first of all, 
And most of all, if you don't do that, I'll take your candlestick away. You'll lose your witnessing opportunity. You'll lose your opportunity to be a person and specifically a church of influence if we're not people committed to really loving Jesus most of all. Now he does give them a little encouragement in verse 6. Yet this you have. You do hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. This church had trouble loving Jesus, but they were good haters when it came to hating what was evil. Now, please note, it was not hating the Nicolaitans, it was hating their works. It was hating what they were teaching and what they were doing. And they were a, a, a people who had distorted the message of Christianity, and we'll look at that in more detail next week. But they had distorted the message of Christianity and um, it was something that dishonored God and dishonored Christ and they resisted these false teachers as well. He says in verse 7, if you have an ear, you better pay attention and listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. It's a command that every one of us reading this letter and hearing this letter needs to pay attention to. But then notice the promise that he gives at the end of of verse 7. He says, The one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You're going to see this person named the conqueror, the one who conquers, the one who overcomes. They're going to be mentioned at the end of all seven letters that we'll be reading over the next several weeks. And it's easy that when you and I think of the word overcomer or conqueror, it's easy to think of it as some sort of super spiritual Christian who's arrived or really accomplished something or really talented spiritually. But as you read what Jesus and notice what Jesus is saying to each one of these overcomers, it's, it's for us to understand that really the overcomer is every believer. Everyone who is an over, everyone who trusts in Christ is an overcomer because Jesus Christ has overcome. All of us are victors in Christ because Christ has won our victory. And as we trust in Him and follow Him and rely on Him, and in this case, that loving, trusting relationship with Jesus should lead us to love Him with all that we have, love Him with everything we've got because it's this great privilege, our greatest privilege of all. As we do that, as we do that, we overcome. We overcome our own selfishness. We overcome our own weakness and fear. We overcome our own sinfulness. We overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. And he says, I will grant that you will eat the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. You'll get to eat something that Adam and Eve didn't get to eat. They were kicked out of paradise because there was another tree in that garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God said, don't eat from it, and they disobeyed. They were tempted by the devil, and they, were di- they disobeyed. And because of that, they were expelled from paradise. They were expelled from the Garden of Eden, and they were no longer able to eat from the tree of life. Eating from the tree of life makes you live forever. Adam and Eve would not have lived forever without the fruit of the tree of life. That's what sustained their lives and gave them eternal life. So Jesus is saying here, if you're the overcomer, guess what? You're going to get to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God, the new Garden of Eden that you'll see at the end of Revelation in chapters 21 and 22, the the new Jerusalem where the, the tree of life grows and the river of the water of life, and it's paradise there, and you're going to eat that fruit, and you'll live forever But there's something here that I want you to notice. And you can see this if you do a little research. 
and look into and do a little word study here. The word that he uses for tree, there were several words in the Greek language for tree, but the word that he uses for tree is not the typical word for tree. It's another word. It's the same word that's used in Galatians chapter 3 that describes the cross of Jesus. And it says, cursed is everyone that hangs upon the tree. You see, if you want to get to the tree that's in the Garden of Eden, the tree in paradise, the tree of life, you have to go through the other tree, the cross. And if you go through the cross, if you come to Jesus and you trust in Him who gave His life and died for us, then you will receive eternal life. You will receive the life that really satisfies, that endures forever. You will receive that. That's what happens when a person truly loves Jesus. They receive His life. They are fully satisfied. What a great privilege to love Jesus and to share His life. But there's a cost to it. There's a price to it that if you truly say, I'm going to put Jesus first and love Him most of all because it's a great privilege. It's, you know, I'm, I'm satisfied in His love. I am enjoying Him. There is a cost that comes when we enjoy Jesus. You say, I knew there was a catch. But there's a cost. And that's described in the second letter. And this is a short one. It's in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are, of the, are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This also is the word of the Lord. In this short letter, Jesus is writing to another group of Christians near Ephesus, the town of Smyrna. The word Smyrna, uh, it describes a town that was very beautiful, uh, had lovely architecture, a beautiful harbor, uh, a large plaza, that, uh, a mall-like area where all the temples were associated with. It was, it was a, a, a town that was so beautiful that many of the other cities in Asia envied it greatly. And this city was also a place where myrrh was manufactured. Smyrna, myrrh. Uh, you can tell the words are very similar. You remember what myrrh is, don't you? Myrrh was a perfume. Uh, the wise men gave it when baby Jesus was born. Uh, when uh, Jesus was embalmed after his crucifixion, they put myrrh on his dead body and wrapped it in the linen cloth. Uh, in the book of uh, Song of Solomon, when uh, the lover is describing the beloved, he says, uh, she's just so beautiful, she smells like myrrh. That's her perfume. It's a, it's a, a very sweet-smelling perfume is, is what he's describing here. And, and it's, a, it's a perfume that indicates royalty. It's the, it was in the anointing oil that the high priest would put on when he began his rule and, and leading the worship in ancient Israel. So it was very fragrant. It was a sign of purity. It was a sign of love, but it was also a sign of death because 
it was used to embalm and prepare bodies for burial. So this little town, the city of Smyrna, had a little church. And notice how Jesus describes it. Well, first he describes himself as the first and the last, the one who died and came back to life. We'll come back to that in a minute. But he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. You see, what was happening there, that there was a group of Jewish people who rejected the message that Jesus was their Messiah, and they were actually attacking the Christians, and it may have just simply been a a whisper campaign, a campaign of slander, and because they were slandering and accusing the Christians, the Roman authorities who gave the Jews privileges like other religions, they didn't give the Christians those privileges. All the Christians had to do to fix the situation was just go to the temple where they worshiped Caesar. And all they had to do was take a little pinch of incense and just sprinkle it upon the fire there at the altar at the temple. And that was just that, that little tiny pinch was that, and that little tiny sprinkle upon the fire. It was just a sign of their loyalty to the empire. That's all they had to do. They didn't have to like the emperor. They didn't have to love the emperor. They didn't have to serve the emperor. They just had to give that allegiance. And if they would just do that, that little pinch of incense on the fire, if they would just do that, then they would, they would get along fine with everybody. But the Christians refused to do that. Why? Because they had one king, not Caesar, but Jesus. Jesus was their king. He was their Caesar. He was their Lord. And because of the, the Jewish people, attacking them because of the Romans attacking them and criticizing them as well they were oppressed in that way he says I know your tribulation your 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 persecution and I know your poverty because there was probably boycotts and and uh, they had property and wealth taken away from them and this is not talking about a metaphorical poverty but an actual physical um, financial destitution they were poor and because of that, and, but Jesus wants to encourage them to say, you're still rich. You're going through all of this. You're, you're suffering. When he calls these Jewish attackers the synagogue of Satan, this is not anti-Semitism in this case. Because Jesus was Jewish. John, who's writing this letter, is Jewish. John is just recognizing, and Jesus is recognizing, that anybody that refuses to come to King Jesus and trust in him, this is what all people need to do, Jew and Gentile. Muslim, Buddhist, atheist, every person on planet earth needs to surrender to Jesus Christ and trust him as Lord. That's the message of the Bible. And if anyone refuses to do that, no matter how religious they are, how spiritual and and mindful they may seem religiously, spiritually, they are still lost and they're under the control and domination of Satan. It's not an insult as much as it is just a reminder that you have a choice. You're either on God's side or Satan's side. You're either loving Jesus and surrender to him or you're serving the devil. Jesus even said in John chapter 8 to the religious leaders that were attacking him, they claimed that they were children of Abraham. We're children of Abraham. We're people who are blessed and privileged to be the sons and daughters of Abraham. And Jesus says, you're not of your father, Abraham. You're of your father, the devil. And he's a liar and a murderer because you are rejecting me. The believers in Smyrna did not reject Jesus. They loved him. 
And that love for him, the privilege of loving him, was so deep in their lives that they were willing to forfeit their wealth and their safety and their security. They were willing to to endure the persecution. And Jesus says to them in verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Don't fear anybody at all. It's emphatic there. Don't fear anybody at all. Don't fear anything at all. You're about to suffer. Don't fear that suffering. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. He's saying there's going to be this specific persecution coming. It's going to be of short duration, whether it's a literal 10 days or something that's just figurative. It's the idea of something that's of short duration. It's going to be intense. It's going to be suffering that they've not experienced yet, even though they've been going through suffering. And he says, the devil is going to throw them into prison. You say, wait, 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 wait. I thought they loved Jesus. Doesn't Jesus protect people from the devil? He does. But there are times where Jesus understands that really the devil may tempt us and test us to tear us down, to lead us astray, to tempt us to be unfaithful to Jesus and deny him, apostatize from him. But Jesus uses the same test that the devil may bring, Jesus uses the same test to test and see how strong is our love and devotion to him. Do we really love him or not? Are we really faithful to him or not? And so when you're tempted and when you're tested, God is working through that. Yes, the devil wants to tear you down, but Jesus is using it to help you and him examine your faith and my faith. Do we really love him? Is he truly our first love or not? He's going to test you for 10 days. He says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. You see, remember how he introduced himself at the beginning in verse 8? The words of the first and the last who died and came back to life. Jesus is reminding us here that he's the one who has authority over history. He's the one who, yes, he died on the cross, but he rose from the dead three days later. He's the one that's in charge. He was there when history began. He'll be there when history concludes. He's the one you can trust and depend on because he's conquered death. And so that's why he says, be faithful unto death. Even if you have to die, you keep on being faithful until your very last breath. You keep on loving me and being devoted to me and loyal to me, even to that very last breath, your last dying breath. Stay loyal to me until then. He says, I will give you the crown of life. You're the real hero in my eyes if you do that. You're the the conquering hero in that case. I'll put this wreath of life, this crown, it's a victor's crown, not a royal crown, but a a victor's crown like they would get in the ancient Olympic games. I'll put this crown upon your head. You fought valiantly because you loved me and you were loyal to me in spite of the persecution, in spite of the, the poverty, in spite of the slander and accusations that you were going through, that the devil brought into your situation. You were faithful to me, you loved me no matter what, and I'm going to crown you with life. Eternal life, that's your crown. That's your reward because you've been faithful to me. Loving me is a privilege, but there's also a price. The price is persecution and resistance from the world. But if you're faithful, 
if you don't let fear stop you, I'll put that crown upon your head and say, well done, you've been a good and faithful servant. Why are we afraid? We're afraid because we believe the accusations that the devil brings, that people around us bring. You're not good enough. You're a failure. Jesus has forgotten you. You have, you have sinned. You, you have wrecked your life. You're, a, you're such a screw-up. And sometimes the accusations are not from outside of us. You hear them inside your own head. You're not enough. You're not good enough. You're not worthy. He doesn't love you. And that's a lie. It's slander. It's an accusation. And the truth is what Jesus is saying here, if you be faithful to me because you love me and I love you, I will put this crown of life upon your head. Because I'm the one that's the first and the last. I'm the one who died and came back to life. You can trust in me. You see, that's interesting. Why did he say 10 days? You know, you're going to go through the suffering for 10 days? I don't know. I don't know if he's saying it's a literal week and a half or, or what. Maybe so, but maybe it's something else. But he, he says 10 days. And you look in Scripture, there was one other guy that got tested for 10 days. His name was Daniel. And when you read in Daniel chapter 1, Daniel and his three friends, they're there in the king's court, and the king wants them to eat all this food as they're being trained. These, this pagan king that's carried them off into captivity, the pagan king wants them to eat all this food that's been offered to idols and to worship these idols through eating this food. And Daniel says, I don't want to do that. I don't want to defile myself. I want to serve God and be honor, honor God. So he proposes a test. I'll eat vegetables and drink water for 10 days, and then you can test us and see how we're doing. And the supervisor agrees, and after 10 days, and I'm not saying that you should be a vegetarian necessarily, but... Daniel and his three friends were healthier, stronger, and more alert than the other guys that had eaten the king's food. After the 10 days of testing, they were vindicated. Jesus is saying to the church in Smyrna, you go through these 10 days of suffering, you go to prison and maybe even be executed for me because the Romans put you in prison not just because they wanted to lock you up, but they wanted to either, uh, you were awaiting a trial or you were awaiting execution when you went to prison. So it's possible that some of the Christians there would have died during these 10 days of persecution. You get through those days of persecution. You get through this poverty and listen to this slander. You get through this and you trust me and you're faithful to me and you don't quit. You keep loving me. You'll be vindicated. You'll be approved at the end. You'll receive that crown of life. And again, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All of us need to listen to this. That there's a price for loving Jesus and being loyal to him. Then notice the last promise. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The second death is the lake of fire described in Revelation chapter 20. You know, we all fear physically dying. We see it all the time. We, 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 we buy insurance to get medical care, to stay healthy. We... we we just don't want to physically die. But, but Jesus is saying that's not the death you need to worry about. That's going to happen to everybody at one time or another. 
It's that second death you should be really scared of. That's to die. That's to die physically and then to be judged and condemned by God and separated from Him forever and to die forever in the lake of fire. That's the second death. And Jesus promises that the overcomer will never, ever, and it's emphatic, they will never, ever be hurt by the second death. It will, have, it will not touch them, harm them in any way. Why? Because they've been vindicated. They love Christ. They trust in Him. They've been faithful to Him. And they'll never, ever be separated from Christ for eternity, they'll be with Him. They'll be enjoying His love and enjoying His acceptance. You see, we're called to love Jesus most of all. And we do it because it's a privilege. I mean, in His love is where we get life. Life that really satisfies. Life for all eternity. It's a privilege to love Him most of all. But there is a price. If you love Jesus, most of all, there will be people that want you to love them more. There'll be things that want your attention. There'll be governments and institutions that want your love. And you will constantly have to say no to them and yes to Jesus, and they will oppose you. They will resist you. They may even persecute you. But will you love Jesus most of all because He is the one who loves you and gave Himself for you? Will you love Him? Take the words of verse 5. Remember from where you've fallen. Do you really love Jesus with everything that you have? Do you see how much He's done for you? Do you enjoy Him? If you're not enjoying Him, just start spending more time with Him. That, that will help you learn to enjoy Him. Do you need to repent and turn away from what's been preoccupying you? distracting you can you do the first works can you really think about what is it that would help you grow closer to Christ is it time in the word is it time with other Christians maybe it is serving but doing it out of love for Christ because Christ loves you the most important thing to do in life is to love Jesus it's a privilege there is a price but it's a privilege Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this great opportunity to be in your presence. And I thank you that uh, you have loved us with a never-ending love. How glorious is your love for us that we would be called the children of God. That is what we are. I ask that, Lord, you would enable us this day to truly delight in you, even if there's a price to pay that we would delight in You and rejoice in You. And I thank You that You love us so much that You're willing to challenge us and rebuke us when necessary. To tell us that something is in the way instead of really loving You. And I ask that, Lord, we would clear that out of the way and put Christ first and love Him most of all. Father, I ask for Your blessings upon these dear friends who are here today now. My brothers and sisters, in the name of Jesus, I pray these things. Amen.